guys. Welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. Phil, who do we have today? Yeah, today we have Krish Kandaya, and this is the second part of an interview we were able to do that we released uh, the first part back, part of the Refugee Crisis series. It was the first uh, interview of that series, and Krish, as you learned from that, if you heard him, he's a man of wisdom. He's a man that's very passionate about what he does. And he is a huge advocate for orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. I was able to hear him speak again a couple weeks ago at the Q conference. And Chris just, you know, I know that he blew away that audience. He spoke about four different times uh, at the, at the conference. And each time uh, the guy just brought it and, and he brings it again in this interview. And, and the reason why he can do that so often is because he lives it out. He believes it. It's something that he understands and he can share because it's something that is intimately connected to his life. As you'll hear in this interview, this man is living it out in so many different ways. And he has learned things from what God has taught him in his own life and in the lives of so many other people that he's in contact with around the world. So I, I look forward to hearing from you guys, you know, share with us what you're learning about this and about every other uh, conversation we've been able to have with other folks. You can do that at our website. You can do that at his Facebook page. Uh, and we also want to hear just your overall thoughts of the podcast. And you can do that at, the, at iTunes, uh, rate and review the podcast. It helps us get it out there. It also helps us to understand uh, the, the, uh, the, you know, from your feedback, how we can engage this conversation better uh, and with you and with others. The other thing we'd love to uh, have you do is be a part of the podcast by uh, helping us financially. And you can do that at the providenceworld.com giving uh, link there. We'll have that on the show notes. And if you want to do that, Providence World fuels this podcast in some way that you can, you can, uh, another way you guys can be a part of this. So with all of that, I look forward to hearing what your thoughts are from Krish Kandaya's interview uh, with me. And as I said before, this man not only has a heart for this, but he's got wisdom that comes from his years, all his degrees that he's got, all the speaking that he does, and he's able to share a little bit about all that with us on this interview. Here it goes. Well, Chris, it is so good to have you here today, all the way uh, from the UK. Hey, it's great to be here, Phil. I'm in... Uh it used to be sunny Oxford, but the rain has just started. So typically English weather today. <laughs> um, yeah, those of you who have, have not been to the UK, he is exactly right there. I know I've, I was able to visit a few years ago and, and it is definitely overcast more than it's sunny, but uh, it is still a fantastic place to go and I absolutely <laughs> love it there. So, um, but uh, Chris, I know that a, a lot of our audience, um, you know, despite the fact that you're doing some amazing work that we're going to hear about today, a lot of them uh, have not, you know, really heard of you, don't know a lot about you, if anything. So can you just briefly share your story um, with us and, and kind of how you got to be where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Krish, which is short for Krishna, um, because I come from a Hindu and Catholic background. Uh, but I came to uh, faith in Christianity through a mate of mine at school uh, who stood up and shared his faith in front of a very hostile bunch of teenage boys. And uh, I was just so amazed by his living 
relationship he had with God. And that really challenged me to kind of seek out that for myself. Um, I was mentored by campus groups uh, who were working on my um, school campus. And then I went to university. I studied chemistry with medicinal chemistry. Um, I met my wife there at uni. Uh, She and I got married straight afterwards. And then we were cross-cultural missionaries in Albania just uh, from 1995 to 1998. And our job was to kind of start an indigenous student movement and uh, we were doing that with the help of InterVarsity as it's called in the States or IFES as it's called uh, around the rest of the world and um, then um, I was uh, working in a a local church while doing studies in the area of missiology so how does uh, the Christian faith uh, disseminate around the world what does the mission of God look like how do you integrate uh, a firm belief in the good news of Jesus with a desire to show the goodness of the kingdom that's coming. And so what does that look like in terms of social justice? Um, I taught for a number of years at Oxford University at Wycliffe Hall, which is a theological school there. Um, And my main area is mission, evangelism and apologetics. And then I went to work for the Evangelical Alliance, uh, which is a network of thousands of uh, evangelical churches with a real commitment to, to do good in society and to speak the good news. And it was during my time at the Evangelical Alliance that um, we realised there was a huge need in the UK for more foster parents and adoptive parents. And uh, my wife and I, we'd, we'd become birth parents, we have foster children, we have adopted children, and um, we realised that this was something that the church collectively could do. Um, And so we started a charity called Home for Good, which has the express purpose of finding a home for every child that needs one in the UK, uh, either through long term foster care or through adoption, whatever's the best outcome for the child. And our numbers are pretty exciting because when we first started the charity, there was around 5,000 children that were waiting for adoption. And most of those children were older. They were in uh, brother and sister or sibling groups. Uh, Many of them had additional needs and many of them were from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. And so they weren't the top of the list of the kind of adopters that were coming forward. Most adopters seemed to want a baby, but the kids that were waiting for adoption uh, were older and therefore they were being left in the system. Mm. Uh, There was also a need for another 9,000 foster families. Um, And those numbers are pretty big for the UK. I know the American situation is much worse. You have 100,000 plus children waiting for adoption. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're a much smaller country. But when we factored in the church, that's when we realized we had something. So our little organization, we have um, connections with or links with around 15,000 churches. Um, and so that means we just need one new family to foster or adopt per church and we could uh, have the rest of the church wrap around those families and we could meet the entire need. And that was the kind of origin story of our, of our little charity. Yeah, and I know that that wraparound care is something that we talk a lot about over different uh different podcast episodes. I encourage you out there, if, if you don't feel the call right now to be a foster uh, parent or an adoptive parent, that that is one way you can absolutely get involved in. And not what we're going to be talking about today, but it's something that I definitely want to encourage you to, to be thinking about as a way that God can use you uh, in this. Um, one of the things you've also started uh, recently, um, I don't know how recently, but it's the Books for Life uh, kind of blog and video series. And something that I know I have learned from as a reader, as a learner, um, and I know a lot of the folks listening today are as well. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I became a Christian through that mate at school, but I didn't really have that many mentors in my life. And so I went down to our local uh, Christian bookshop 
and uh, we had a great older man that was there and he kind of fed me books that really kind of nourished my soul um, and I'm so grateful for the input of great Christian literature. It started my theological journey. You know, I ended up doing a PhD in theology. And um, I owe a lot of that to that kind of formative influence that this bookshop owner had. And in the UK, as in many places around the world, uh, Christian bookshops are closing. Publishers are in kind of financial trouble. So we're at a kind of interesting tipping point in terms of where Christian publishing is at. And uh, so basically I wanted to kind of restore or revitalize um, the, the feeding of the church on great Christian literature. I think Christians are reading just as much as we used to. We're just reading different things. So a lot of us are reading blog articles and magazines, and they're great. I'm a big fan of those things. I write a lot of those things. Um, but there's there's nothing that can replace the kind of deeper reading, the sustained kind of thought patterns, the curated and edited material that someone might have really poured their soul into over a longer time right. um, that a book will give you. And so what we've done is we've just talked to significant Christian leaders from across the spectrum in the UK. Uh, we've spoken to worship leaders like Matt Redmond, theologians like Tom Ryan, um, kind of prayer kind of warriors like Pete Gregg authors uh, like Philip Yancey uh, and asked them what are the three Christian books that have really changed their lives and um, mm. we've been really excited by the kind of books that they've been encouraging us to read and the, the infectious enthusiasm that's been out there and it's all available online for free and uh, we'd encourage you to have a look tell us what books you like and uh, see if we can change the tide on reading at the moment yeah, I love it. I love it. And I, I know there's a, something I've heard many times, which is leaders are readers. And I think that that is something, like you said, it can take a lot of different forms. But I think you hit it on the head with the books that there's something out of book that there's a lot more time and energy and thought that goes into pouring over it. It's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, not to mention it's a collaborative process <laughs> that isn't just yeah. you sitting down and writing it. A lot of other people are involved in reading it, you know, making it so it, you know, usually the case is to make it, you know, even better than the original pen on paper. That's right. So, and if you're going to invest time in reading, you want to read something good. And so when someone you take seriously as a leader is telling you this is the book that changed my life you know you're not reading kind of just any old book you're reading a significant book absolutely and i think oswald sanders in uh, spiritual leadership said you should choose your books like you choose your friends and i hmm. think that that was something that was really powerful for me and something that's stuck over the years you know because there is so much we could read um so yeah thanks for that sure. thanks for doing that I, I, I encourage everyone what's the website for that people can people can check it out it's it's booksforlife.uk. Okay. And then let's get back to the Home for Good a little bit. I know you, you talked about the amazing impact that Home for Good uh, is having and hopefully will continue to have over the years. Can you just briefly share, and I, and I want to encourage you, if you could also just share the website, but people, folks out there, you can go to this website and there's so many good resources, so many great videos to get the details, but I just want Chris to be able to share with us today um, just the, the, the what home for good does and maybe just kind of talk about a couple of the campaigns the mother's day campaign father's day campaign that you guys mm -hmm. have done um and really how it fits into the the uh, vision for home for good sure so i mean from our perspective we're calling the church back to what god asked his people to do um for me it was a a, a bit of a bolt out of the blue. I, I can't believe I'd been a Christian for so long. I'd read the Bible so many times. And yet this rich seam of biblical literature 
around God's concern for the most vulnerable people. Uh, so concern for the orphan, the widow and the stranger. Um, and that really kind of impacted me and uh, my wife. And, you know, we started to become uh, foster parents. And the, the thing that really struck me was that, that we did that not because of the church and actually sometimes in spite of the church um, and and when home for good was starting as a as an organization we, we did a lot of listening we went traveled around the country found as many christians that had fostered or adopted as we could and and we'd never found anyone that had been inspired to do that or encouraged to do that by their church. Often it felt a very individualistic call. And so we thought, hold on, that's that's crazy. You know, when, when God evaluates the worship of his people, um, if it doesn't include caring for the widow and the orphan, he is not happy. Mm. And yet for many of our churches, you know, we, we, we say we're great at worship. By that we mean we've got a fantastic worship band or we've got an amazing preacher. Um, but that isn't the indicator that God is looking for. Uh, he's looking for to what extent are the hearts of my people love? the lives of my people impacting on the most vulnerable. And so, you know, it depends who you talk to. Within some streams, we call this a kind of prophetic calling that we feel we've got um, to gently but um, confidently call the church back. Uh, in other sectors, we don't use the word prophetic because it kind of spooks them out. So we, <laughs> we just talk about calling people back to biblical orthodoxy and, and offering God the kind of worship that he asked for uh, in the first place. Um, but we do that in partnership with uh, the UK government. So um, we've had a grant from central government, the Department of Education, uh, to reach out to new audiences with the, the need for adoption. And um, from the government's perspective, um, they're not doing that because we're Christians. They're doing that because they can see potential that Christian people can can bring into this. Um, they did some surveys and found out that um, people of faith are more likely to foster or adopt than the average member of the population. So for the government's perspective, this is a, re a good return on investment. You get a new kind of adopter, you get a new kind of foster carer, and never mind it's from the church. Um, as long as they deliver, we're happy. So we're that bridge between uh, central government, local government as well, and the church. And because those two worlds, you know, the world of kind of civic society and the world of the church, often don't speak each other's languages. Um, we're a bit of a, a translator between those spaces, a bridge between those two spaces. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, the collaboration is something that is so critical that uh, you, you talked about. You talked about the collaboration with the government. You talked about collaboration you know, with the church and churches doing this work with the families. Um, you know, can you just speak to that a little bit, just the importance of collaboration in the work that we're doing, the importance of collaboration uh, in the UK that you're, you're doing, but also that you are equipping other people. I know I saw a tweet that you sent out last week where you were doing work in Albania and the Balkans and just the importance of doing work with others and celebrating together what God is doing. Yeah, sure, sure. So maybe a story will help, Phil. So um, a few years ago, when Home for Good was just beginning, um, some pastors from the town of Southampton got together um, and they realized that because of government spending cuts, local uh, authorities, local government was not going to have enough money uh, to put into the kind of basic services that would serve the city. Lots of economies around the world have the same issue. Um, and so a delegation of church pastors went to see uh, the head of the council, um, the mayor and his office and, and the other councillors. Um, and they said, look, we love this city. 
Uh, our churches are some of the oldest institutions that are here. Um, and we plan to be here way beyond this government and its current round of spending cuts. We're here for keeps. Um, and we want you to know that we're here to serve. And we want to ask you, how can the church better serve this city? Because we love it. And uh, the, uh, the head of the council was kind of shocked um, because, sadly, their experience uh, in previous times and previous councils has been the church has often come with a wagging finger, telling the government off for something, telling them they shouldn't have replaced Christmas with Winterville or uh, they shouldn't have opened their shops on a Sunday. And um, But here were some Christians coming with an open hand and, and an offer of help. And... Um, the, the, the head of the council said that what they really needed was more foster carers. They needed 40 foster carers in order to be up to speed, in order to care for all the kids in the city. Um, and one of the people that went forward, one of the church leaders, had been a foster child himself uh, in his teenage years. And he said that the time that he felt most trusted in the family home that he was staying with was when they gave him the front door key to the house. That meant he belonged and it meant he was trusted. And so um, the other church leader that went was an adopted dad. And so here you have two church leaders with a personal connection to caring for the vulnerable child, um, hearing this need from the council. And um, they gathered all the church leaders, they prayed hard. And then I'm at this big civic meeting. I'm supposed to be giving a talk there uh, about God's heart for the vulnerable. And the whole show was stolen by this amazing pastor who had been in care himself. And he'd made a plaque. And on the plaque, he'd put put 40 front door keys and um, he, he put the verse from the Bible from Psalm 68, God places the lonely in families. Mm. And he told his story and he said, we want to open 40 more front doors to vulnerable children. And we as the church, we will not stop until we found all 40. Um, and even even if that's where that, that, that conversation ended with the handing over of a plaque to the head of the town council, what a, a wonderful picture of collaboration that the church is not against the city. It's not against the government. It, where we can, we want to uh, accomplish the same Ends. We want to see children flourish and grow, whatever their backgrounds. Um, but actually, it went beyond that. Um, those churches really pushed hard, and they saw a real surge of people coming forward from the church, moved by this. Um, and the church was now driving this change rather than just responding to a few individual families that might be so inclined. So we think when the church gets this, the collaboration between the church and the, and the city government is huge. But actually when the church collectively works together, people from different denominations, Baptist, Anglican, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Catholic, you name it, saying we want to put the needs of vulnerable children first. That is super exciting, and it's led to all sorts of opportunities to talk about the good news of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's it's so powerful. Um, can you sh- share real quick, and we'll put this in the show notes, but just the the Home for Good website, and uh, you know, I, I know as I said earlier, there are so many resources people can use in the UK and otherwise. There's some great videos that you can use in your churches. There's some great videos that they've put out, um, particularly as I mentioned earlier, the Mother's Day, Father's Day campaigns. Um, but can you just share the, sure. the web uh, website for people? Yeah, it's www.homeforgood.org.uk and it's H-O-M-E-F-O-R good.org.uk and you'll find a whole bunch of resources there. Um, with the Mother's Day resource, what we were trying to do was to say to the church, um, for many church pastors, Mother's Day is one of the most pastorally sensitive days in the year um, because most people have got some kind of 
challenges connected with um, their parents, whether it's their parents have died and they're mourning them, whether they've had a difficult relationship with their parents, um, or um, often infertility kind of comes to the front at that time of the year where people who'd wanted to be mothers can't be mothers. Such a sensitive time of year. And we, we wanted to provide a resource that would help the church pastor in that context, but also raise the voice of the child that's still waiting for a mother figure in their life, whether that's through adoption, reconciliation, uh, or through fostering. And so the video is just made by a friend of ours who, who gave us his talents at a very cheap rate just because he's passionate about what we do. Um, and it's just been a really, really powerful video in the UK context. I just heard the other day that um, some friends of ours in Brazil are going to remake that um, mm in Portuguese because they, they like the concept. And again, if people want to kind of have a go or connect with us, we, we'd love to kind of um, release resource because we really want to help this message spread throughout the world. Uh, I was in Albania recently, not trying to start Homes for Good Albania, but working alongside the Albanian government. Um, and actually World Vision in the Balkans is exploring what they can be doing. So, you know, we, we don't think this is a franchise. We think this is a movement, a family of people mm -hmm. that really want to see things change for vulnerable kids. No, absolutely. And, and I, I know that that, uh, that quote that I, that I mentioned there, the last one, true hospitality is a virtuous circle that, mm. that goes to something else I want you to, to go into here where how your yeah. experience as a foster parent really has given you a glimpse into what Isaiah was talking about and, and taught us mm. centuries, <laughs> centuries ago. Um, and you know, not only what it taught, it's taught you, but also what our, our mutual friend Susan Hillis's life has taught you about these things. Oh, yeah. Well, Susan Hillis is, a, is an amazing woman. I wrote a, an article about her as soon as I met her. She's just a fantastic woman. She's a colonel, I think. Um, she has the rank of colonel in the uh, uh, the equivalent of the military that she works for at the C, um, Center for Disease Control. Um, she was, you know, one of the first responders in the uh, Ebola crisis. Uh, just fantastic woman. And then adopted, what was it, 11 children altogether? Yeah, I lost count. Just, so many. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but there is just a vitality in her relationship with God um, because of the care that she's given other people. And that's where the virtuous circle comes in. As you give yourself away uh, to others, you end up coming closer in intimacy with God. And round it goes, round it goes. Jesus said that his food was doing the Lord's work. And this sense of giving yourself away to receive back from God is just a, an incredible experience. And our, our experience as, as foster parents is that um, when we have welcomed children in dire circumstances, um, you know, we've had kids turn up at our house at two o'clock in the morning. They've arrived in the back of a police van because there's been some um, allegations of abuse in their household and they had nowhere to go so they come to our house and we're barely awake and we're doing our best to kind of make them feel uh safe and secure and you know a few hours later they're snuggled up uh, in their beds and the sense of of joy that brings that you've been able to be the people that have given these children sanctuary um in at a really really difficult part uh, time in their life is just a wonderful gift from God. I think of some of the kids that I've I've looked after with my family here, and I remember I came home from work once, and we'd had a crazy day trying to get different groups of Christians to work together, and it was like herding cats. It was almost mm. impossible, and I came home deflated, but. Um, the little boy that we were looking after um, begged me to take him to the park, and uh, I really didn't want to go to the park. I was ready just to relax and mm -hmm. have a drink and 
feet up. So we end up going down to the park, and uh, this was the day he was going to try his his bicycle without the training wheels on, mm. and. Uh, he nailed it, man. He nailed it. He was zooming around the park and he's shouting, awesome, awesome. Mm. He was zooming because he couldn't stop because he hadn't figured out how to stop yet. But, but I tell you, the sense of, of privilege and connection with God in that moment, because I know this boy's story. I know where he's come from. Mm. And, and to see him just flourishing was an incredible gift from God. I, you know, I often think of this verse in Zephaniah where God says that he rejoices over us with singing. And mm. I think I think that's because he knows our story. He knows where we've come from. He knows some of the mess we got our lives in. And he just loves it when we begin to flourish and grow and, and look like Jesus. And for me in that moment, watching that little boy zoom around a park, I'm thinking, I want to sing. You know, I'm, I'm a mm. pretty English guy. We don't really do singing in public mm. unless it's at a football <laughs> match or something. But I wanted to sing because I was just delighted and really feeling connected with God and you're supposed to connect with God at church or you know in your quiet time uh, or on a pilgrimage somewhere but but I'm connecting with God at the park watching a foster kid just living life to the full that's so good that's so good and it goes to something else you've talked about I heard another talk that you gave and you talked about um, and you, you mentioned it briefly in the book as well but really the importance of seeing each of these kids not as not labeling them with kind of how the world would label them but really to see each of them as unique children of God and I think you had a story about a kid who was labeled a biter and how that yes. taught you something can you just share like what what you talked about with that Sure. I, yeah, there's a longer version of this story. I'll, I'll give you a brief one, Phil. We'll be yeah, and I can, here all I day. Can, uh, I, can, it, I can link to the, to the talk that you gave on it. Sure. But just give the, the yeah. sound bite, so to speak, for the for I'll our give audience. you the gist of it. Yeah, uh, so we, we got a call, um, and we already had a full house. You know, we normally have uh, three birth kids that live in our house, and uh, between four and, and six or seven other kids that live with us and all together. So we had a full house and we were, we were asked, could we receive another child? And, uh, I just said, okay, what can you tell me? What can you tell me about this boy? And they said, we can't tell you much. All we can tell you is he's a biter. <laughs> and I'm going, Oh my goodness. You know, w w what does that mean? Does he bite stuff? Does he bite furniture? I can cope with someone biting furniture. I'm not precious about my furniture. There's probably teeth marks on my furniture already from other visitors and our cat, you know, so that's not a big deal. Um, but if he bites people, that's a problem because, you know, where's he been? What's he been exposed to? Is he going to infect my family with some terrible disease that I, that I won't be able to help them with? And, 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 and it's all the normal reactions that most people will have. And, you know, I've, I've had a bit of theological training. And, and then the theological part of my brain begins to kick in. And I'm going, hold on, hold on. Biter. That is an inadequate description of a human person. Hmm. When God looks at us, he does not just see the worst thing that we've ever done. And he does not just see the worst thing that's ever been done to us. God sees somehow someone who it's possible to redeem. Uh, God believes that we are still fearfully and wonderfully made, no matter what mess we've got ourselves into or what mess other people have got us into. God sees something valuable, valuable enough that Jesus would die on the cross. And therefore, I need to see this little boy in that light too. Mm. 
and uh, you know welcoming him into our house uh, was pretty scary um, but when he came uh, we realized some of his story he'd had eight homes by the time that he was three he just bounced around from one family to another um, maybe that's why he was biting just to let the world know he was here mm-hmm. and so it was actually a tremendous privilege to have him in our lives we uh, saw him bite a lot of stuff most of it was food so that was fine <laughs> he did not bite another person praise the lord <laughs> but it was a joy and you know that little boy zooming around the park i told you about earlier that was that little boy and he just brought incredible joy to our lives yeah that's fantastic and so that leads us into our last couple questions here that we ask all of our guests. And the, and the first one is, and this goes to the books for life thing that you're doing and, and something hmm. that we really encourage our, our listeners to be reading, to be getting into stuff. And so what have you read, uh, listened to or watched recently that has, that has impacted your thinking on, on how we can love orphaned and at-risk children with excellence? I, I really enjoyed this book uh, by Gilbert Meliander called Not by Nature but by Grace, Forming Families Through Adoption. Mm. Um, and it, it's not my usual kind of tribe to read from. Um, Gilbert is a senior research professor um, at the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. So he's coming from a mm. kind of Catholic background. Um, and, you know, that's not my tribe. But actually he's he's just very profound and he's he's opening my eyes to to different ways of um reading the scripture that will get uh, i suppose more of god's heart more of an understanding of um of pauline particular particularly theology and so i found that very challenging i don't agree with it all but i found it really really impressive um i'm also enjoying reading a book by a um croatian scholar called miroslav wolf uh, which is called flourishing Mm. why we need religion in a globalized world and uh, what I'm finding in a lot of the development uh, context or the refugee context in haven countries um, is that sometimes development agencies do not value faith and they're nervous if it's a Christian organization that's working there and uh, Wolf gives some really helpful pointers um, into how you can speak positively about faith without giving people fear about proselytism or or trying to take advantage of vulnerable people so that's a really profound book that i've enjoyed reading as well that's great and then the last question um what one person and this is really an unfair question so it could be a representative person for many others has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and at-risk children with excellence well, a simple answer to that is my wife. She is amazing, and she was the one that first caught this kind of passion for caring for vulnerable people. And if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't be doing this at all. But also, um, a lot of my work is advocacy. It's out, you know, speaking to government, encouraging churches, um, speaking to, to agencies. And, you know, she's running the fort back home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a team, you know, we co-parent for sure. Uh, but there are many times when, you know, just by the nature of the gifts mix that we have between us, she's focusing more on the home and I'm more outside. And, you know, I, and it's probably a cliche to say it. And probably most of your guests would say the same. But my, my wife has just been absolutely fundamental uh, in that process. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of of. of People like yourself, Phil, and, and uh, the stuff that's going on in in KFO and and uh, Ruslan Mylis, 
and the work that he's mm-hmm. doing with uh, World Without Orphans. Uh, but I've got to give first place to my wife, I'm afraid. Absolutely. No, and I think we we will all you know appreciate that. I know I do because it's the same thing. I tell people all the time that, you know, my wife is is doing orphan care by loving my children really well. Um, so I can do what I do. And I think you're, you know, you're saying the, the very similar thing there. And, and it really is amazing to see when you talk about teams and collaboration, you know, the stuff that often gets never gets seen is some of the most important work that's being done. I think that could be encouraging, hopefully encouraging people out there doing so many different Definitely. things in this work. So, yeah, well, yeah. And my wife's not a kind of public figure. She, she's, she, she's a bit of an introvert. She doesn't like the limelight. And so, you know, it's those unseen, quiet, behind-the-scenes people that often do the most important work, and it's just it's good that we get to honor them. Yeah, and, and I think the more I get to know you, the more I see that we are definitely kindred spirits in a lot of ways. And so I, I look forward to growing our, our friendship and relationship over the years, and I, I hope that people out there that, you, you know, if you don't know Chris, you never met him, hopefully you're able to meet him someday because he really does have um, a lot of wisdom. God's doing some great things through him. So thanks so much, Chris, for, for your time today. We could talk for hours and hours on end, but <laughs> uh, we are limited today. But thanks again for your time, and I know uh, we're all better for it. Thanks, Phil. Great to chat to you. Well, Chris, thanks again for your time, for sharing your wisdom with all of us. Uh, I just, uh, you know, could listen to his voice all day, even if he didn't have the wisdom. But uh, and just the the excitement, just the jovial tone, and he just really, again, keeps it real. So, Karen, what do you think about Chris? Yeah, such wisdom. What a joy to be able to to listen. And I remember even how much I learned from the first segment that we did several months ago. And so just a lot of great content. I hope that our listeners are able to even go back and re-listen to some of it. One of my favorite things that he talked about and you guys talked about in conjunction is just the importance of collaboration and specifically what does this look like for those of us as believers who actually may be working in a secular environment or who may be trying to advocate um, for orphan care or foster care from a ministry perspective in a secular setting. And so it was really refreshing to hear um, him provide wisdom related to this and a great reminder of being knowledgeable, yet being humble in the way that we deliver um, the knowledge that we do have, as well as helping the secular world to understand that you don't have to be afraid of us just because we love Jesus. You don't have to to wonder if we're on the same page because we, we really want the same thing when it comes down to it. We want kids to have families. We want kids to be safe and we want kids to flourish. No, absolutely. And, and that, you know, just reminds me of the story that he told and I've heard in a couple different uh, places, but uh, the story of the kid who he said was described as a biter, right? Mm. You know, and, and uh, that that's not the end of the story, right? That's not who this child is. And, you know, what, what do you think about that? Loved it. So true. So true. I mean, just highlighting so much of what we know from a clinical perspective related to identity and what we know about God from from a biblical perspective, that God doesn't just see the worst of us. You know, um, I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids as well, and we're um, going through the Voyage of the Dawn Treader right now. And just even one of the phrases that 
Repacheep says to Eustace at the end, right as the book is ending, when he says, what a magnificent puzzle you are. And I felt like that was so relevant because that is the story of our kids in general, children's lives. But when kids come from hard places, when their story includes trauma, abuse, and neglect, what a magnificent puzzle our children are and that they aren't just viewed by their behaviors. And honestly, one of my favorite things that I get to teach and and help parents to understand a lot of these very difficult behaviors, a lot of these annoying behaviors, a lot of these behaviors that our kids are labeled with, they're actually survival. Mm. Our kids survived because of these things and praise God for that. And so when I hear that this little man was a biter, I'm like, yeah, you know what? He probably had a lot of sensory stuff going on. He probably needed a lot of oral stimulation and he probably didn't get what he needed. Not only in utero potentially, but also as he was developing in the first few years of his life. And so it's a further indicator for us to understand our kids didn't get what they needed. This little boy didn't get what he needed, but that the story doesn't end there. Mm. And that's something that, you know, I think about so often as we talk about the interconnectedness of everything in in this work that we're doing. You talk about the collaboration that you had mentioned earlier with, with Chris and talking about the importance of that. But really to understand the so important, this identity issue. I mean, imagine if, you know, this kid, he's just a biter in his mind. That's what he is. He's just, that's what he is. Right. What, what implications does that have down the road? Right. What does that have? How does he see himself? How does he see others? What does that look like in relationship? You know, all these different things. And so I talk to people about this all the time. If we can, if we can get these children to understand their identity, as, as amazing, unique children of God who, who have gifts and talents, who are able to do amazing things. You know, the, the, the little girls won't, you know, won't accept prostitution or, or, or the little boys and the little girls also won't accept like being a drug dealer is that's all I can do. That's all I can be. Right. That's that they can understand. No, I'm created to do something where I'm created to serve. I'm created to be amazing. Right. In some way. And those are the things that, that, that parents, you know, that the, that, the, that goes back to, I just thought of Josh Ship, where he says, you know, every child is one loving parent away, one caring parent mm-hmm. away, or one caring adult away from, yeah. from success story and being to change their story. And it just really for them. And I think what's lost in there sometimes is it's one caring adult to really teach and preach and help the kid to understand their identity and their true identity, right? And that's really, they want to be known. They want to, they want to be understood and it takes time. It takes, it takes real time and effort and intentionality to be able to do that. So Karen, any, any, uh, last thoughts on, uh, on Krish before we go into the uh, recommendations, which I, I know you have one for us today. I do have a recommendation. I would say, you know, just one of the things that he talked about, I don't remember your exact question, but he gave kind of um, a list of things that we can do. And one of them was speaking in truth, using our voice and then supporting reputable organizations. And then the third one was praying. And I think, you know, even for me, when I heard that, it was just a great reminder, of course, you know, one and two tend to be more of what my day in and day out work and ministry look like, but of course three, that's the most important one. We've got to continue to pray, um, for families, pray for church collaboration, pray for the children whose lives are impacted, um, who are living without families who are orphaned and vulnerable. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that just kind of reminds me that, you know, th- this interview was not was not in a vacuum, obviously. You know, we had the other interview with the refugee crisis. And, and so to the extent some of the things may not, you know, he, he might have referenced something or he might have talked about something before. Go back to that first episode and listen to that as well, because it does provide some context to some of the conversation today. Um, you know, we, we try to bring to these to you in, in two different parts. And sometimes there, there's some disconnects for some people because they're not sure exactly what someone was talking about. And, and I don't know if that that part you just talked about was in the first episode. It just reminded me of it as far as, you know, sometimes these interviews when we do them in two parts um, or we separate them or we break them out, you know, there's, there's more to the conversation. And, and beyond that, there's so much more to all these conversations for these people, which is why we provide information on the show notes. There's some videos that we, we've, we've linked uh, for you to, to be able to see Krish um, speak about some of these topics in a little bit deeper than we were able to go to on the podcast. So go to, go check out the, the, the show notes on our, on our website as well. So, uh, Karen, you know, now, now it's time for us to get your recommendation, which I always, I always love because your recommendations definitely, um, make me think when I read, uh, the, the recommendations you've given me in the past. So, so what you got for me and the, the rest of the folks listening? I've got a great book for you guys. Um, it's, marketed and I think written uh, for the intent to be a children's book, but I find myself learning so much from children's books, whether I'm reading them to my children or working through with parents or even um, a patient that I'm working with. And so this book is called The Journey and it's by Francesca Sana. This book is about um, a family who is a refugee, and it does a great job of helping even describe what is a refugee. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to share with children, your children, children who may be impacted by the refugee crisis or children who don't even know what the refugee crisis is. It's a great way to to introduce that people's lives look very differently across the world and that not everyone is as privileged as we are as we sit in our comfortable homes with heat or air conditioning. And so I'm always a huge proponent of parents being proactive and helping our kids to understand differences. It's so important. We can't um, cover our eyes and um, raise our children in a way where we don't talk about differences. We have to talk about differences and providing developmentally appropriate education related to very hard topics can be very beneficial for your child's overarching development. So one more time, it's called The Journey. It's a great book. It has just wonderful artwork in it as well. And it's by Francesca Sana. Well, great. Well, thanks again, Karen. And I just uh, pray that all you folks out there that you can you can use this that that recommendation, all that we talked about today with Krish, and really everything else that you're you're coming across that's that's given you uh, solid wisdom to be able to use to love orphan and vulnerable children around the world better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Bye bye. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.